From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode is Dr. Melody Frazier, Director of Research at Pure Seed Testing based in Rollsville, North Carolina, where her primary focus is on the development of tall fescue cultivars with improved brown patch resistance and development of warm season and seeded turf-type Bermuda grass cultivars. Dr. Frazier was the first woman to graduate from Mississippi State University's turfgrass program, and she played on the golf team there. She was awarded the Mississippi State University's Distinguished Alumni Award in 2021. Turfgrass breeders like Dr. Frazier are challenged to improve turfgrass species for a variety of conditions. But clearly one condition no one plans for is wet, soggy ground that produces soft, slow playing conditions. The best way to avoid those slow conditions is to keep them dry, firm, and fast with good infiltration and better drainage. Dryject sand injection services are designed to do just that. Help your course get dry, firm, and fast by increasing infiltration and drainage with their top dressing, aerating, and amending strategy in one pass. Contact your local Dryject service representative or visit dryject.com. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Dr. Melody Frazier. It's so nice of you to take the time to join us. And I want to start out with talking about your career. And I was so pleased to see that you grew up as the daughter of a superintendent. I did, yeah. Where was it and what was that golf course? So that golf course was in southern Indiana, outside a little town called Boonville. So the name of the golf course was Boonville Country Club. No way. It can't be called Boonville. You're kidding me. Boonville, Boonville Country Club. Is it near the home of the Salukis, Carbondale? <laughs> well, not that far from Carbondale, really, but Carbondale's in Illinois. Oh, that's right, Carbondale. <laughs> <laughs> but Boonville's in Indiana, so it's close to Evansville, down in the southwestern tip. Okay, so Boonville Country Club, you wake up in the morning as probably far back <laughs> as you can remember And your dad was one of those, or mom, excuse me, was one of those people who you now serve every day in your work. That's exactly right. Yeah, we moved to the grounds. We lived at the club. We moved there when I was six. And my dad was, he was the greenskeeper. That's what they called him then. Uh It was a nine-hole course at that time. Didn't have a very big budget, but dad always had the best greens around, so... It was great. (laughs) It was a great place to grow up. Oh, you ain't kidding. I have a very close friend who I'm sure you know. Dan Danelli is the same thing, right? Is now the superintendent of the golf course, has been the superintendent of the golf course that his father managed and he grew up on. So it does make an indelible mark. I'm sort of curious how the path was from growing up in that wonderful green space, watching your... (laughs) Father produced just wonderful conditions, obviously led to a golf career. You played golf at Mississippi State. so I did. But what was it like for a plant person? Is this the early days of you thinking about becoming a plant breeder or just somebody that wanted to work outside with plants? Well, you know, we worked on the golf course all the time. My brothers and I, we, you know, we were either playing golf or we were working out there because that's where we lived, you know, so that's what we did. So we were on the golf course all the time, and eventually I decided, and probably when I was in high school maybe, that I wanted to be a golf course superintendent, and I wanted to see if I could play golf. So, you know, we're there in Indiana, so I wrote to 
I wanted to maybe go someplace in the South Mm -hmm. where I could play golf year round. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote to six Southern schools that had turf management programs and women's golf teams. And I got the best response from Mississippi State. So that's where I went. And they had a turf grass program. Oh, yeah, they had a terrific program. And so I was delighted to get there. That's how I ended up there. And, and the first woman graduate. Uh, the first from... woman graduate. Yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah. So it's funny because, uh, you know, now we see the whole women in turf thing celebrated so much. Oh, yeah. And you must be sitting there thinking, Jesus, 30 years. What the How long did this take <laughs> to get to the front page? Yeah, I would tell you, Frank, I, what I always think, and, and I'm thrilled by the women in turf, you know, the whole thing, don't get me wrong, but what I always think is I've been a woman in turf my whole life, you know? That's exactly <laughs> not right. Just my, not just my whole career, but, you know, my whole life. That's really. exactly but, right. And it's such a fascinating perspective. Full candor, I uh, wanted to be a golf course superintendent, too. The closer I got to it and the little bit of I got to do it, peripherally from the work, just running a place on my own, I realized I actually couldn't do it. (laughs) I I couldn't keep my mouth shut, as you might imagine. And, you know, it just seemed like, wow, you know, I I aspired to this and now I don't think I'm going to do it. Did you have that experience? And then more importantly, what ultimately led to you go to Rutgers? But let's start with why you're not a superintendent. Well, when I was at Mississippi State, my advisor there, my undergraduate advisor was Dr. Jeff Kranz. He was the advisor for the turf program there. And I got interested in some of the research that he was doing when I was an undergraduate. You know, we're talking about, you know, the early 1980s. Yeah, I sat on committees with Jeff Kranz for years. He dabbled in a lot of different things. Right. Very innovative. And one of the things he was really interested in is this was when we first started using tissue culture, mm-hmm. you know, in plants at all to make selection in plants. And he was interested in using tissue culture to develop variants of creeping bent grass that had good heat tolerance. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty interesting. Anyway, so I ended up staying there and getting my master's degree with Dr. Kranz, looking at the field evaluation of some of those bent grasses that he developed in the lab. From tissue culture. Yeah, from tissue culture. You know, so then I got more interested in research and he was very, you know, good about guiding me, you know, as I began to think more that maybe research is what I would like to do more than necessarily being a golf course superintendent. You know, I was very young and then, you know, I can remember thinking, you know, maybe I could do more for the golf course. If I went into research and tried to learn more about turf grasses, and um, as I got farther along in my master's degree, Dr. Kranz started talking to me more about maybe I should think about the PhD, and he said, really, there's two avenues that I'd advise you. You can either go physiology or breeding, you know, and he said, if you're going to go physiology, you're going to go work with Dr. Beard, Mm -hmm. and if you're going to go breeding, you're going to go work with Dr. Funk. So he was very good about guiding me, (laughs) so of course... So, of course, I decided to work with breeding and go to Rutgers, and Dr. Funk had room for me in his program, and so that, of course, was a great decision for me to get to spend that time at Rutgers. What a glorious story. Thank you for that. I'm very well trained. Yeah, yeah. Well, that and it shows, too. It certainly shows, but I want to speak specifically. I knew Jeff. And if I wanted yeah. to know how innovative and progressive Jeff was, all I had to do was ask him. He was perfectly happy <laughs> to tell me. It's one of the things I liked about him. I said, what are you doing in the South? You think I feel like you should be working up North with us straight talking Yankees up here. But <laughs> I do want to talk to you about what it was like working with uh, Reed Funk. H- had to be a, 
a fascinating number of years. Uh, I just had a conversation with Eric Watkins recently, who also spent some time oh, yeah. there. And he was there at the end of Reed's, Reed Funk's career. Uh, he was doing nut breeding <laughs> after he gave up yeah. turf to Bill and Stacy. So what was it like being there in, in the late 80s, early 90s with him? It was great. You know, I'd been at Mississippi State then for six years, did my bachelor's degree, my master's degree there. And so my parents and I, we went up to visit Dr. Funk, you know, at Rutgers. I'd never met him, you know, just knew about his program. Yes, I'd been working with bent grass in Mississippi, but really all my turf management training at school was pretty well all warm season grasses. Hmm. So we went to Rutgers and Dr. Funk just, you know how it is when you visit Dr. Funk. We just went out and we started walking <laughs> around right. on the turf plot. That's right. And he's just talking to me That's right. the whole time. And we're looking at stuff. And <laughs> there were a couple things that I realized pretty quick. One was that I had a whole lot to learn. <laughs> and then that you can learn an awful lot from Reed Funk for walking around for 30 minutes on the turf plot. Yeah, 100%, I know. Remarkable. I had the experience of being with Dick Scogley at the University of Rhode Island. Oh, yeah. Who was pals with Reed Funk. And he would come up at least three or four times a year, drive up to Rhode Island and visit. And I did the same thing with Scogley. Friday afternoons, I would sit in my graduate office across from his office out at the plots. And he would look in. He goes, you're here? I'm like, yep. He'd get his hat. He'd tilt it to the side, put the pipe in his mouth. <laughs> and off we went for two hours until he's, well, would you like to join Jane and me for dinner? And, and then off I'd go and we'd talk about grass even more. And you are exactly right. Just hanging around with those people uh, had enormous yeah. impact. So you had a lot to learn and he had a lot to say. <laughs> He sure did. And it was just a privilege. You know, I mean, I learned a lot of things from Dr. Funk, but Dr. Funk worked harder than anybody. One of the reasons he was so successful is because his work ethic is about unmatched. <laughs> you know, he just worked hard all the time yeah. and he liked to have fun, you know, had a great personality. But, you know, he worked hard. You know, you learned a lot just by watching him and listening to him. And, of course, just always had great people around, too. You know, the students and other faculty there at Rutgers. I mean, it was just a great place to be. Isn't there something about plant breeders that you all sort of work a little harder than the average bear? Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, the meticulousness, the detail. Sometimes it lends itself to that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there are certain times of the year, certain seasons where you have to work very hard just to get everything done. But, you know, he, he taught me a lot about thinking about problems or, you know, how to do things. And I learned a lot, of course, just seeing how they did things there, particularly for how my career took me, just learning how to right. organize turf trials and plant turf trials, you know. <laughs> now, you know, it gave me a lot more confidence when I started my job here right out of school, so... Very fortunate with the timing to be coming in there. What turned out to be the end of Dr. Funk's turf career. Right. Just very fortunate. And the people that you got to meet and spend time with who visited Dr. Funk, all of the feed industry people came there, right. you know, and he was, of course, very generous with his time visiting those people, but also with including his students or other people there, you know, so I would get to go walk around turf plots with all those people, too. Right. You learned an awful lot about how things worked and, you know, who everybody was, which was very valuable. Yeah. And and Murph was new then, and I think there was a guy named Bruce Clark who was pretty good, too. Yeah, Bruce. And one of the things that, you know, I'm pretty sure really, really helped their success over the years has been the integration of these players, not 
simply that they're all really great people and great scientists, but they figured out how to work together too. I mean, I would meet with Bruce and he'd take me to breeding plots and we'd look at gray leaf spot stuff or I'd talk to Murphy and he'd go over to the bent grass plots and take me to the breeding plots. And I talked to Rich Buckley on a regular basis and he talks about the things he sees on the research plots, the variety trials. So that integrated part academically, I knew I'm wondering if what you describe with the industry visits, Melody, led to you then going into the industry. I think that it did, of course, because I got to meet all of them and they got to meet me. You know, the first visitors that I met at Rutgers, like in the first week I was there, was Bill Meyer and Crystal Bricker. Yeah. They were the first ones that came because I can remember going out on the turf lot. Hey, I had just gotten there. I didn't know anything. (laughs) Bill Meyer is walking out there, and he's, he's like, oh, Melody, where's this trial start? And I'm just looking at him, and Crystal says, Bill, she doesn't know. She just got here, you know? And like, <laughs> I can just remember that like it was yesterday, you know? Yeah. <laughs> ultimately, you know, Bill's the one who hired me for this job, you know? So it was very valuable to get to know all those people. It, it was really good. So Bill was at Pure Seed Testing with Crystal, but Bill, Crystal's dad, right? was integral in the process, and Bill Meyer worked with Bill Rose. Right. They worked together, and so Bill Meyer, you know, at the time that I was hired, was the president of Pure Seed Testing, which is a company I work for, Mm -hmm. and Bill Rose was president of Turf Seed, you know, at that time was the production and marketing company. And, of course, Bill Rose is Crystal's dad. So they decided together that it would be a good idea to start a new facility where they had a breeder in place more in the transition zone or a place that it was harder on cool season grasses. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to put somebody, you know, when they decided about the job that I have. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, listen, I promise I'm not going to make you talk about yourself that much longer. (laughs) We're going to start talking about grass in a minute. I mean, I've been around a long time, so I, you know, yeah, yeah, it's the same by you. Yeah, yeah. And it's nice to hear you reflect on it. I do a lot of that myself. I think, again, as I said, my degrees timing wise look very much like your degrees timing wise. So now, as you said, you are managing a research center in the southern part of the United States for this uh, seed company. Is that what you thought you'd be doing for the last bunch of years? Have you been in the same role since Bill hired you all those years ago? Uh, Yeah, I have. It's been 31 years this summer. (laughs) But I did. You know, they hired me to start this farm here. There wasn't anything here, but, you know, they, it was an innovative idea that they had because all the seed companies, you know, have breeders in the seed production area up in the Pacific Northwest, but they had this idea that it would be good to have a facility more to the south where there's a lot of stress on cool season grasses, and then also where they could start doing some breeding on warm season grasses, because before they hired me, the company didn't do many warm season grass breeding work. So they hired me to do that, to start this facility and to work on these problems. And, you know, I'm sure that when they hired me, I hadn't thought in the world about what I'd be doing 30 years from then, <laughs> you know, because I was just a kid. Yeah. But I, <laughs> but you know, that you know what it's like, Frank, 30 years goes by pretty quick. Oh, boy. When you're doing something you really like to do. So. 100%. Well, listen, let's take a break, give you a chance to catch your breath, and we're going to get into what you're doing down there and then some broader industries about the turf grass seed industry which is having some trouble. Uh, I'm Frank Rossi. I'm with Dr. Melody Frazier. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back.
Our best turfgrass varieties still require product application to maximize their performance. Specifically, spray applications are critical, and accuracy isn't good enough. You need precision. Our partners at Frost Spray Technology are able to add precision to your spray applications with the latest technology in whole systems, nozzles, pumps, and best-in-class GPS-guided equipment. Simply add one of Frost GPS units onto any sprayer and make your spray day a better day. Visit them at frostserve.com. That's frostserv.com. All right, Melody, welcome back. And let's pick up where we left off on the work at this wonderful research center down where you are. (laughs) And I'll say one of the things that would have been really no way to know, although if you listen to Jim Hansen back then, we might have known that the climate was going to change in a way that was going to make your work some of the most important work going on in, in the entire breeding world, as far as I'm concerned. Certainly, in addition to the stuff at Rutgers, where those transition zone environments are getting so acutely warm, so rapidly warm, especially in urban areas, pushing tall fescue. I remember when I started recommending tall fescue in New York in the early 90s, they looked at me like I had three heads. What do you mean tall fescue? going to die. I was like, I don't think you've been to Rutgers to see these tall fescues that that were coming out that looked like bluegrasses. I guess I'm sure you had some exposure to that when you were there. Oh, yeah. When I was there and we were finishing up there in the late 80s, that's when those types were really starting to come out. Right, That was really, that was a big push on tall fescue back then to make them look as much like bluegrass as you could. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, develop that heat tolerance, which we're damn glad we got it. Right. In in doing that. But, But I think the more interesting thing I think you see at least come from Oklahoma, Tahoma, and Lat 36, right? The ones that are pushing further north. Tell me, as you've done this work over the years, have you seen the impact of the changing climate? You've been in the same place studying grasses and looking at grasses and watching them and improving them. Has the climate been as much of a challenge as pathogens or or insect pests might have been considered years ago? Well, I think they're all connected. The stresses that we get... Let's just say stick with cool season grasses and cool season grasses in this part of the transition zone where I live. It's hard on them, you know, to get through the summer times here. And as our summers get hotter and drier or sometimes our summers are wetter, it just all combines with the pests that we have to make it just a very much more challenging area to grow those grasses successfully. You know, there's any number. That's a great thing about turf grass breeding or one of the great things is we have a lot of species to work on, so that's fun. But there's an awful lot of different stressors that we work on, too, to try to make improvements. There's so many different traits that we work on, but all of them, you know, the goal is the same with all of them. We're just trying to develop grasses where we can reduce the inputs that the turf manager has to put on them, right. you know, whether it's water, whether it's yeah. pesticides, yeah. fertilizer, you know, you name it. Yeah. Just trying to make it so that these grasses don't require as many inputs. It's a struggle with, as you say, our climate is certainly changing. The pests that we're dealing with are different. It's a, it's a struggle. It is a struggle. And in, particularly in that environment, it's a struggle. And what I'm getting at a little bit when you bring up traits, for example, I did NTEP trials in the early mid-90s into the early 2000s. Yeah. And I remember only up until the last 15, 20 years have we been doing more of these ancillary tests But for certainly at least 10 or 15 years, they were beauty contests. And you gave them fertilizer (laughs) and you gave them water and which ones gave us the perfect version of the American lawn or golf course or probably not even sports field. We weren't even doing many traffic trials back then. 
were the things we've done in the past and bred for that we're using material, Reed Funk developed material in the 90s that we're probably still using in one way, shape or form. I guess what I'm getting at is are things changing faster than our ability to sort of have material that has traits that give us some hope for better heat tolerance or better drought tolerance. The extremes are becoming the norm now, right? Melody, we're getting these extreme things more normal. Right. We're seeing certainly more extremes. I think that, you know, we all work hard on these and a lot of different sites, a lot of different people working on these traits. And I think that we're able to make improvements for sure. But does that mean I think necessarily, you know, I could grow? I know for sure that we've developed tall fescues here at this location that are better adapted for this location and locations like it than other tall fescues are. Does that mean that I think necessarily that we could manage any of those varieties with no irrigation, depending on the turf use with no fungicides, you know, during the very extremist summers that we have? I'm not sure that we could and keep them looking the way we want them to look. Hmm. But I definitely think we can manage them with fewer input hmm. than with varieties, say, that we used to have, beauty contest winners. They still got to look good, even <laughs> if they do have these traits. I mean, we're not going to change that about turf because for so many of the uses, maybe all the uses that we use turf grasses for, you know, that's still a big thing is what turf looks like. And it's so much different than, you know, working in row crop breeding, you know, where yield is our thing, right. you know, that we're looking at. With turf, we've got to worry about seed yield too, but we've got to worry about what the end product looks like as a finished product. Ultimately, that's what we're all looking at it to see <laughs> how it how it looks. And for some turf uses, of course, the aesthetics are much more critical than they are, you know, in other turf uses. I don't have to tell you that. But. No, 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 for sure. And what I think of when you say this, this if you don't mind, we're going to go down this wormhole for a second. I was always yeah, I don't mind. <laughs> yeah, I, I was always fascinated with this idea of you know there are some things we still have to do. You know, we can't find one like you say that does it for everything. But two things come to mind. One is, and you had a front. Maybe you know you were around when Stacy was in graduate school doing this work at Rutgers with the dollar spot where she was just dousing the plants through so, you know, intensely putting them under pressure. There's a strategy that's called in breeding that eludes me now, you know, screening them intensely, getting a few out of 10,000 and then expanding them, you know, like you guys do in the F2s and F3s from there. So I think, and now we've got, gosh, almost, I got to tell you, we got bent grass varieties in some pretty dollar spot ridden areas, Melody, where maybe guys got to make one, two apps a year. And I'm thinking fairway apps, you know, big applications. I'm not talking about putting green stuff. Right, right. So that's first thing. Second thing is talk to Brian Schwartz a number of years ago on a, on a project where zoysia grass related. He was talking to me about Tiff Tough uh, at the time. And, and I remember uh, asking him, you know, Tiff Tough, how come you're hot on this now? I've never heard of this grass. He goes, Frank, it's been in these trials as a standard forever in the TIF numbered, you know, varieties that, you know, he took over from, from the TIF stations. He said, we didn't notice it till we shut the water off. We shut the water mm. off and TIF Tough was the best looking one of all of them. And it held its quality there. So what are your thoughts about those sorts of dramatic approaches to doing it that are maybe you know, less incremental, uh, more dramatic. Yeah, the drama is the whole reason that I'm here. You know, that's that's the whole reason they hired me. 
you know, is so that we could really put the screws to cool season grasses and see how they held up here. Mm-hmm. My main responsibility here is to develop tall fescues with improved summer performance, if you will. Mm-hmm. Better adapted tall fescues for this area. So basically when I came here, we just planted everything. And the big pressure that we were working on at the beginning was brown patch resistance. And, you know, we were able to make some progress on that, you know, and of course you're working on heat tolerance right along with it. Mm -hmm. But now the biggest disease pressure here is gray leaf spot on tall fescue. Mm -hmm. And it is a much more devastating disease to a tall fescue turf than brown pants is because it can certainly kill that turf all the way. So gray leaf spot, I'd say for surely approaching 10 years now has been the biggest stress that we've been working on on tall fescue here. And in the summertime, if you came and saw my tall fescue trials, you would see that whole survival of the fittest thing because we just, you know, we manage them to get as much disease as we can, which is pretty easy to do on tall fescue. I mean, we get so much disease here, the pathologists at NC State do their fungicide trials out here every year, you know, because they know that we're going to get a lot of disease. So we always make plenty of space for them to do their fungicide trials here too. But this summer, you know, we're talking about extreme and the weather this summer, we were very dry till the end of June, extraordinarily dry, the driest probably that we had seen here in the time that we've been here. And then First part of July, we had one week where we had six inches of rain, just an absolute flood, and then got into a period where we were getting thunderstorms almost every day. And this is all of July and early August. Our temperatures were extremely high. So it didn't take very long for all the tall fescues to melt away because of how we managed them, because we encourage the passage, <laughs> you know, but not just the tall fescues, you know, the bent grasses, you know, the ryegrass always melts here, yeah, yeah. you know, because we don't use ryegrass or permanent turf here, but all the cool season grasses, just extremely hard on them to take mm-hmm. those very high daytime and nighttime mm-hmm. temperatures just day after day after day. And the only relief that they're getting is not relief. It's a horrible thunderstorm in the afternoon. That's exactly day. right. And that's Dr. Melody Frazier from Pure Seed Testing. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Water and nutrient management are critical to optimize turfgrass species and varietal performance. Whether it's cutting-edge wetting agent technology, biostimulants, or nutrient products, the plant food company has all the products that get the most out of your turf. Check them out by visiting with your local plant food rep or at plantfoodco.com. What marked the change between brown patch and gray leaf spot? Because the brown patch thing, here's, here's a, you know, an agronomist's view of tall fescue. When I see it in parts of New York get brown patch, it has to be some really extreme weather for it to actually kill it. We see a lot more superficial rhizoctonia solani in the heat. Right. Then we see deep kills with it. That's the first thing right. I'd say. So you big kudos because that was a limiting factor. But did conquering one make us more susceptible to the other? Why has gray leaf spot become a bigger issue, pushing more tall fescue out there? I mean, I've heard people tell me in New Jersey, 
even Bruce Clark up until just a few years ago, he never saw a gray leaf spot on tall fescue until about three right. or four. Right. I years. mean, I would ask him okay. every summer because, <laughs> you know, they've done so much work on ryegrass, on improving ryegrass, you know, gray leaf spot resistance. And I'd say, Bruce, don't you have it on tall fescue up here? And he said, no, you know, and we're just getting devastated all the time. But, you know, it's a spore-borne disease, you know, so I think that the weather, you know, and the weather patterns just have to be just right to move those spores around up, you know, get them to move up there because there was one year, a couple few years ago, you know, not only up to where they started seeing it at Rutgers, but also farther up into the Midwest, you know, where they'd see more symptoms on tall fescue. And it's interesting, you know, we see where we are seeing the damage of gray leaf spot on our tall fescue trials here is we're looking at it the summer after it's established, you know, established in the fall and then the next summer is when we're getting so much disease. Occasionally, we'll see some on seedlings on new trials, you know, when we plant them. But if that gets to be too much, we'll spray that because, you know, nobody wants to lose a whole tall fescue trial to seedling gray leaf spot, you know. <laughs> but I don't know that things have switched so much. You know, we still get brown patch and we still get quite a lot of it. Typically, brown patch causes unsightly damage on the tall fescue, but unless the pressure is very high for a long time, doesn't necessarily kill that much turf. Now, in our trials, we kill a lot of turfless brown patch just because we encourage it, you know, but it's not the real world. We're trying to manage to get good disease. So what happens here is the brown patch starts up, say, in July and has its typical peaks and valleys. But then the typical time is like end of July, first part of August, we'll see the gray leaf spot symptoms starting to come in, too. So the two diseases really overlap here. You can't distinguish among them unless you see a plot that's really had good resistance to brown patch and then suddenly it collapses and you can tell that it's gray leaf spot that's doing that damage. Hmm. The gray leaf spot typically then here will go on and it'll hang around like even into October. Hmm. But here at the research farm, we encourage the gray leaf spot. And so the number of spores that we get out there without applying any fungicides is just It's enormous. Tremendous, and it just magnifies the damage. So our top fescue trials here are basically annual now because there's so much damage from the gray leaf spot. And yes, we can see the ones that have better resistance and and our experimentals that have better resistance, and we can move forward with them. But there's so many other plots out there in the trial that are just dead to the dirt that (laughs) (laughs) there's no need to keep that trial anymore. You know, so it's pretty interesting. It really is interesting. And let me me ask this now. Gray leaf spot resistance in particular, ryegrass or tall fescue, does the resistance, and you were talking about having to treat new trials. When you have a resistant, of course, let's clarify, resistant, not immune, When you have a resistant variety, does that resistance manifest itself in the seedling stage or are they all susceptible to gray leaf spot like that in the seedling stage? And it takes a while for the resistance to manifest itself. I think there's like all things in genetics, there's variation. You know, I think there's variation. So at Rutgers with their um, gray leaf spot breeding in ryegrass, that's been largely done at the seedling stage because they plant their trials quite early mm-hmm. in the late summer, and then the spores are up there at that time. And so those new seedling ryegrass trials get infected, and they're able to see differences. When I plant ryegrass trials here, I don't see that gray leaf spot damage until the next summer. So if we're on ryegrass, the challenge for me is to hold a ryegrass turf long enough to get gray leaf spot on it, you know, in the summer. 
And so we tried to look at, you know, do things that show good resistance as seedlings at Rutgers, does that translate to what shows good resistance as mature plants mm, yeah, here? Yeah. And there's some variation. But I think if you saw something that had really good resistance as a seedling, you'd have to think that the genetic resistance is there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But I think it's possible that there's some varieties that could maybe show more susceptibility as seedlings, but then, you know, if that turf were allowed to mature, that could probably hold it off longer, you know, when the plants were mature than they would at seedlings. And, and we have plenty of times gotten seedling data on gray leaf spot on tall fescue, but I don't just don't like to let it go too far. <laughs> yeah, I don't like to let it go, right. go too far. You know, you can get, you know, you can see some differences and get a rating and then we'll Spray Try to shut it down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, I think this is my last cool season grass question before we get to <laughs> some of the warm season questions. But I, I want to draw particular attention to that storm you mentioned that came earlier, that six-incher. And, you know, my monitoring of the southeast the last several years has been that those intense conditions are happening annually. They just might be happening, you know, 100 miles north or south of the Carolinas right. uh, if it's not dead on. It was that storm just a few years ago dropped like 20-something inches. And then you get these years where it just rains the entire summer. I don't know even how you get out to do the work sometimes on a golf course. But this has made root zone drainage more critical <laughs> than it used to be. We're seeing, I would almost say, epidemic levels of pythium root rot in poor performing root zones. And I'm wondering, we've been really talking mostly about foliar issues, but you you and I know, I think the more complex ones by far are the ones under the ground. Right. Getting the roots to handle living in a, you know, a pretty nasty environment down there. Are you seeing any, any ability or are you focusing on any traits to help us with pythium root problems? Well, sometimes we end up finding out things not intentionally, mm-hmm. you know, because we do have creeping bentgrass trials here. You know, they're very important to us. The same thing to try to see what bentgrasses perform best in this stressful environment. And our bentgrass green this summer, we applied a fair amount of preventative fungicides to it, you know, to keep the turf pretty nice. But we got a lot of pythium root rot in there. Mm-hmm right at the end of July, first part of August. And we did see some big differences. Some experimental varieties really just were handling that stress uh, much better. Didn't really study it, making the assumption that these, you know, it looks like at least from looking at the turf above the ground, that these varieties have probably better root masses. I know for sure they have better heat tolerance because their experimental studies performed well here in previous summers. But then when we get that pathogen in there. And it's not just the fact that there's pythium root rot in there, but just those high temperatures day after day after day, even if there's no pathogens in there, that's very hard on creeping back grass roots Hmm. or any cool season Hmm. grass roots. You know, once you get to a certain temperature, it's so hard on them. So I think heat tolerance was a big part of what we were seeing, but I also think physiologically something about those plants probably were allowing them to tolerate the stress from having so much of that pathogen in there. Hmm. So I think that those are things, too, that we can make improvements in. But at the same time, you know, when the climate is so stressful, when the environment day after day is so stressful, it really takes 
not just specialized varieties, but specialized management and specialized fungicides. Anytime I see stress like that on our bent grass trials here, you know, I'm sure glad that I'm not keeping that area out there for golfers. Right. You know, <laughs> that's right. Because it's yeah, so yeah. stressful. It's so stressful. I mean, I think it was really good that we got off on that. Uh, how that important having that underlying selection pressure is. So you're in really uh, the perfect spot, I think, to ask this question, especially because you've been in that place for quite a while now. If you had to guess, if you had to guess, do you think we're going to see more cool season grasses move south or more warm season grasses move north? Well, agronomically, I would think that we'd see more success moving more warm season grasses to the north because the summer times in particular are so much more stressful. So within that, let me take that apart a little bit. Within that, yeah. you're doing work on seeded Bermudas and zoysias. Is, Correct. Is that part of the strategy? If you move these grasses north, people in the north, we're used to spreading seed up here. We don't know about this sprig, sod, <laughs> you know what I mean? Plug business. We buy the plugs on the, in the Sunday circular, right? Zoysia, right? Emerald, emerald zoysia <laughs> that my grandfather's got on his grave because he loved he mm. loved zoysia grass. So is that part of the strategy because you think you're going to want to put some of these further north? Well, I don't think that, you know, necessarily started out that way when I was hired. I mean, turf seed and pure seed testing, you know, they're seed companies, so seeded varieties is what they wanted to work on. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of work getting going on improving seeded turf types of Bermuda grass. At that time, you know, Sahara came out in the late 80s. And, you know, we started seeing some work happening there to try to improve turf types that we could seed. There's so many, you know, advantages to having seed convenience-wise at the very least, rather than having to do plugs or sprigs or something. Yeah, we've just always been focused on developing seeded cultivars. Now, it does make it the seeds easier to ship and move around, mm-hmm. you know, to different markets and things. And so it might be easier, you know, in some places for some turfs to have seed to establish varieties. So, Are the seeded varieties as good as the vegetative varieties? I think that they're very good. We have some very good seeded Bermuda grasses. And I don't, by we, I don't mean just my breeding, I mean in the market in general. There are some very good seeded Bermuda grasses. And I think that for many turf areas, certainly the seeded types would be terrific to use for practically any turf area that we have other than greens. When you look at them, the way that I look at varieties all the time is side by side, you know, in trials where I can see how one compares to another. So if we have a trial where we had, you know, some seeded cultivars of Bermuda grass and we had some of those vegetative cultivars in there with them, I mean, you look at them side by side, you might go to the vegetative one and say, wow, that turf quality is better. Mm-hmm. But if you look at those seeded varieties themselves and you thought about the turf area that you were going to plant with this, whether it was a home lawn or a fairway or a tea, mm-hmm. or, I mean, they would make a very good turf. I think that there's a lot of use for seeded Bermuda grass and I think for a lot of turf areas where people might not have considered seeded Bermuda grass that it probably could work for them. Okay. Since we're talking about the seed industry, I leaned into the seed industry and you've been in the seed industry well, for all intents and purposes, when you showed up at Reed Funk's store as a graduate student, you've been you've been contributing to the seed industry. And I've had a number of conversations with people in the seed industry, uh, including our pal, uh, Dr. Leah Brillman. And I guess I'll ask it this way. 
How worried are you about the seed industry, production, supply, and demand? Well, I'll tell you that I'm, you know, certainly affected by it. In my day-to-day work, geography removes me from it somewhat Mm -hmm. because I am not right there in that part of the country. I'm not there right there looking at it every day. You know, it's like any other part of our business in turf. The weather extremes have really been affecting the seed production industry the last couple of years. Just mm-hmm. unbelievable, really. Mm-hmm. And so it's certainly there's things to be concerned about when you work in developing varieties. You certainly want to see that seed get to the marketplace. And it is getting to it. And I, from what I've been told, the yields this year look good. Good. But the crop is late because the weather... Mm-hmm. It was so cool and abnormally rainy in the spring and early summer out there that is the plant's growth delayed seed set, delayed seed ripening, delayed harvest, you know, it's delayed everything. And those delays, you know, aren't particularly easy to take in a year after you had some pretty big shortages like there were last year. Mm. And how much does that part of the industry, it is true that geographically you're removed, obviously, if you're sitting out there in the Willamette (laughs) Valley. It's obviously more, you know, in your face every day. But, you know, at the same time, I've understood that part of the issue is we typically have some grass in storage. Year over year, there's always a little bit stored to buffer in between these things. And now maybe storage is really low. And that's why being late is even more of a problem because we, you know, you're still trying to figure it all out. And I guess (laughs) I asked Leah this, I'll ask you this. We better get used to just paying more for grass seed in the near future. (laughs) I would, first of all, let me say, I would never second guess a single thing that Leah Groman said about anything about the seed industry because she is an absolute expert. 100%. But yes, you know, what you said is absolutely right. You know, because there were shortages last year that maybe there's not as much or in some instances, maybe not any carryover from previous crop. And so when the new crop is then delayed, it certainly leaves a gap. And a gap to where, you know, people who buy grass seed and people who sell grass seed too, I'm sure, but, you know, would certainly feel the pressure of, am I going to be able to get what I need when I need it? And yes, um, grass seed prices are, you know, as we know, the prices are high, but things like fertilizer and freight, just for two things that really affect grass seed production are a couple of things that are very highly priced. And, you know, those things, and along with just regular old supply and demand have made prices high. So... But it's just uh, the weather extremes again. You know, a lot of that is why seed supply is in the constraints that it's in. The weather, they've had extremes over the last few years, and they've been different extremes. Yeah. From wildfires to ice storms to drought to now very wet. You know, it's just all over the place. Well, I couldn't agree more. And I got one more question, but I want to go back to this. I worry that... What I started asking you about climate change in your particular area and how the extreme conditions are now becoming normal, you know, you're, you're breeding for a wide geographic area, much further north than you used to breed for, for sure. We got all the seed produced in an 80-mile radius in the Willamette <laughs> Valley. That doesn't sound like a very climate-resilient system. You know, what do I know? I'm just a, you know, a dopey agronomist uh, watching this unfold What are your thoughts about the possibility that we may begin? I mean, why don't they produce seed? Is there any reason you you can't produce seed where you are? I mean, I know the climate's perfect up there in so many ways, but 
it doesn't seem as pleasant, plus restrictions <laughs> for chemicals and burning, right? That's that. If it was just right. the weather, you got chemical issues, you got burning issues now, things that used to be easier, harder. You got competing crops that these farmers can grow with much less grief than yeah. turf grass seed and maybe not much more, you know, scale dollar for dollar, corn and wheat can be, maybe they can make just as much money. What do I got to fuss with this baloney for? So number one, it doesn't look re- very resilient. Number two, it doesn't look like anybody's in a hurry to get in that business. That's why I asked you if you were worried. <laughs> I'm worried. Yeah, you know, I mean, it does make concerns, you know, and what you say about farmers wanting to grow other crops, which is a reasonable thing to understand. 100%. Yes, so it makes, you know, acres harder to place. So it does, of course, make you concerned about things. But it's at the same time, you say, you know, if you look at different environments, Typically, you know, that environment is the best Mm -hmm. for producing cool season grasses. And so, I, you know, certainly there can be other places to produce seed. But, yeah, we couldn't produce cool season grasses, say, here in my location with any degree of success. You know, the the latitude's not right, for one thing. Mm -hmm. And our summers are just way too moist to do things. The plants don't get very tall. They don't make very many seed heads Mm -hmm. and yeah, well, and, you know, but that typical, if we want to call it typical weather that we get, you know, in the Willamette Valley is pretty good for it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Listen, let me get you out of here on this. Um, how'd okay. that, how did that feel to get the Distinguished uh, Alumni Award from Mississippi State? That must have been pretty cool getting that award. That was pretty cool. That was a real surprise to me. Yeah, I was very honored by that that recognition by the college. It was great, but it also lets you, you know, it gives you a chance, you know, to kind of look at your career. And, you know, when you're being asked to kind of describe highs and lows and things about your career, kind of like talking to you today. Yeah. But, you know, when you get into, you know, the part of our careers that you and I are both getting to, frankly, got a lot to look back on, you know. And so, <laughs> you know, to see that work recognized, that, that was nice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we're looking back on more than, than, we're, looking, <laughs> than we're looking forward to. So, so we're sort of forced but with that's, that. That's okay. Yeah, you know, is. I mean, because, gosh, I don't have to tell you just what a great industry it is oh. to have had your career in, just yeah. the people alone. Oh that we've gotten to know in this industry are tremendous. So, Well, people like yeah. you and Leah and Crystal are gifts to this industry. <laughs> I'm, I'm really so grateful you took the time. We went a lot longer than I thought we were going to talk. <laughs> I, I really appreciate you taking the time, Melody. Thanks very much for joining me. I'm glad to. Thanks for having me, Frank. I appreciate it. Anytime. Dr. Melody Frazier, Pure Seed Testing in Rollsville, North Carolina. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. Big thanks to Melody Frazier for joining me. Really appreciate it, Melody. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability. And Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.